Hello and welcome to The Gradient Podcast. The Gradient is a digital magazine that aims to be a place for discussion about research and trends in artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is an extension of that. We interview various people in the field of AI, ranging from researchers to practitioners and beyond. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Joel Simon. Joel Simon is a multidisciplinary artist, toolmaker, and researcher. He studied computer science and art at Carnegie Mellon University, worked on bioinformatics at Rockefeller University, and most recently is the founder and director of Morphogen, a generative design company developing Artbeater, which is a massively collaborative creative tool and network. His interests lie at the intersection of computer science, biology, and design, as well as furniture design, collaborative creativity, sculpture, and game design. Personally, I'm a huge fan of Artbeater since the days it was called Gambeater a few years ago, so I'm very excited to have him as a guest on this episode. So thanks for joining us for this, Joel. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, uh, yeah, let's just get going and start with your time at CMU, uh, which I guess is where you did your undergrad. Uh, so you studied both computer science and art, which seems pretty cool. And it looks like you explored uh, both sculpture and generative art at this time, just browsing for your website. So could you uh, describe your time there in terms of how you got into art and uh, I guess any sort of memories you can highlight in terms of uh, how it was a formative time, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah, it was certainly uh, formative. Carnegie Mellon has a very unique and great program where called the BXA program, where you kind of get this hybrid degree between um, art and, and something else. The X is a variable. So it was a combined computer science and, and fine art degree. Um, which I really appreciated because you get kind of the full um, computer science education and art education. Uh, it's not like one in the service of the other. So you really get to go deep in both um, and think about how they relate. And so, yeah, that was very cool, um, unique. There's like, and if anyone's interested in this field, you know, I recommend checking it out if you're looking at undergrad where, you know, you can take robotics classes in the art department or kind of like, conceptual and critical game design classes, for instance, um, which, which is kind of a unique thing. And so, yeah, for me, it was definitely a time, I think like a lot of people, you know, you're, you're kind of figuring out what you want to do and, and what you're interested in and how to combine those two, right? Because there's, there's a lot of different ways and, and everyone went through the program, kind of had their own flavor or way of, of working with them together. You know, and I think I came in interested in, in sculpture and, and video games. And I think that changed. Uh, a lot through my time there. There's definitely some like projects that I guess looking back kind of started certain threads. So um, for me, you know, Art Breeder was inspired by this project I did as like a final project at Carnegie Mellon called called Facebook Graffiti, where um, and that was like a, a project for a computer, like a kind of a, a class that was based around kind of computational art. Um, and there, the idea was basically um, extending, this is back in like 2013, so it doesn't like Facebook, you know, people's views on Facebook <laughs> were, a little, were a little different back then. Right. But the idea was just like uh, extending like the metaphor of the wall, like the Facebook wall, um, 
I don't know, at the time I was watching like documentaries on like uh, New York graffiti scene in the seventies and like the sense of like decay and, and public presence on a wall. And like, how could you extend that to like these very sterile walls? So, you know, you could draw collaboratively on, on Facebook photos. Um, and I think you're either very inspired by like, like MMOs growing up and just like kind of this power of the creative crowd. And so some of things kind of came together there, but it was like, I wasn't thinking about it in the same way I'm thinking about it now, but I, you know, looking back, I can see how that kind of set up some things. And yeah, it was a total like anarchist mess. Cause like everyone was kind of going crazy and there's some brilliant stuff. And as you can imagine, some not so brilliant stuff it was all public and persistent and anonymous and yeah, cool classes. And let me think what else, like, um, I made a, like a, a game, uh, where like there's a multiplayer game, you're going to figure out like who was the chatbot and who was like the Eliza chatbot and who was the real person. So the person to pretend to be the chatbot rather than like an AI trying to be a person, the person had to like act to be the chatbot. It's almost oh. like who it was. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that where, you know, it's, it's still kind of playful in games, but you're maybe trying to engage with like, uh, you know, things in the computer science history. So, so yeah, it was, it was cool for kind of developing uh, some of those things. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, looking back in my undergrad, I think uh, it's a great time to sort of just do little fun side projects without expecting it to turn into anything, which uh, is kind of harder as you go on. Yeah, definitely, where you feel like everything has to be a success. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Facebook graffiti, which was sort of, uh, you know, formative in that it was... Uh, dealing with uh, crowdsourced collaborative uh, art creation, uh, which is one thread that certainly uh, relates to Artbreeder. And then at the same time, I guess you've also started to explore generative art, which is maybe another aspect of Artbreeder. Can you go a bit into that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I... Really, for a while, I was really, I'm still into very much into figurative sculpture. I think that was one of those things where just like, you know, I'm just like blown away by Rodin sculptures every time I see them. And, you know, uh, I still kind of feel like a sculptor at heart. And so I think in college, one of the, the questions I had was like, what does it kind of mean to sculpt today? I spent a lot of summers doing like figurative sculpture um like you know clay cast, cast and plaster sculpted off a model uh kind of traditional in that regard um that's something I, I really love doing and i interned for a sculptor after my freshman year of college who's a contemporary sculptor and he was working in software um you know making everything digitally using things like zbrush like maya um and that was also very influential for me because I realized that, you know, there's a, it didn't quite feel like the right use of the medium, you know, studying computer science and doing clay sculpture. This felt like a weird in-between. I guess you could say the, the distinction being it was digital and not computational, right? It was this like mimicry of what it meant to sculpt in the real world. Where you had this like pressure, pen, like, you know, this little tablet and a pen where you were kind of sculpting digitally. And during that program or during that summer there, as I was working and I was sculpting in clay at the night at night. I had a lot of time to think about like, what does it mean to sculpt in a, in a computational way and not a digital way? And I feel like that thinking has kind of been with me. Also, there was a, uh, uh, I guess a kind of funny influential moment. I remember during our, um, 
art, so like in art school, you get like these crits, right? You get these like sophomore reviews and they, they looked at my sculptures and they were like, these are nice and all, but like, you know, we've seen these on the Pantheon. Like, why does the world need more of these? Mm-hmm. Um, which was like fair, <laughs> totally fair. I mean, well, no one asked like, you know, violinist that. So a little, <laughs> a little you know what I mean? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's still training to some extent, right? So. Right, right, right. I think you need the basics, but I think I, I, I was like a little defensive at the time but they're right you know like what does it mean to sculpt computationally and like having that interest while also taking all these you know algorithm classes it kind of left a lot of my thinking so like i think in a way since then a lot of my work has tried to get to the question to like what does it mean to to sculpt or create things in a computational way you know um what are the interfaces what are the metaphors for it um and I don't think I made a ton of progress on it, but that's kind of been a thread going since then is like, how do you actually sculpt something computationally? I think another thing Facebook graffiti kind of set up is like the use of metaphor in that process where like Facebook graffiti is around the metaphor of like the wall, right? And how do you take this like public, you know, walls are walls, they're public and they decay, right? So that was like the organizing metaphor. And I think Facebook graffiti likewise was kind of also a tool based around this like organizing metaphor, um and like how to create but um but yeah so then i tried some you know very basic things and like using code to modify sculptures that i had on my computer and stuff like that and that's kind of been uh you know the last ever since then it's kind of been a running theme in my work like what you know what does it mean to to sculpt today yeah, it makes sense. That's uh, quite interesting. And I imagine not many people are exploring that intersection. So that's a, a rich ground for innovation. Um, I guess I'm also curious, uh, going off of that, uh, if you sort of explored or studied the history of computational art at CMU, because I think, you know, People often ignore that uh, people have been using computers for art since the 60s, especially right. now with AI. So I think it's interesting kind of how much inspiration you took from that. Definitely. Um, I think that's one of the nice things about having those kinds of classes there and professors who really know the history. Um, you know, I can think of like, like a class I took with, with Golan Levin, who probably knows all his history better than anyone. And that was really helpful. I think also like since then, particularly a lot of my interest was in like genetic algorithms and like, you know, the history there, like it goes like, like basically everything was done in the nineties. <laughs> and I try to like, I try to cite that in places. Like, you know, a lot of this is just like updated stuff that like, you know, people like Carl Sims and others were doing like back, back in the nineties. And, and for a lot of the, Genetic algorithm stuff, a lot of it goes back then. But, oh, yeah, there's, like, uh, what is it? Aaron Cohen's um, bot. And, yeah, the history there is so rich. And a lot of stuff, in a way, is kind of just revisiting that stuff now with with his new methods or, you know, new scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, so after CMU, you went to work in industry for a bit before we get to Artbreeder. Uh, so these in these sort of intervening years, um, I guess to what extent did you continue working on art uh, in that period, or did you continue thinking about it? I suppose. Surprisingly, that was a bit of a kind of one eighty for me a little bit. Um, after school, I you know went to work in a computational immunology lab where I had opportunity to like do things and. 
I know I didn't want to work at a large tech company and I, you know, generative art, I wasn't quite sure how to pursue that. And so at least this felt like a really purposeful and interesting way that I could learn a lot. Um, and it, it really kind of ended up, so for a couple of years, no, basically, I kind of just, for some reason, stepped away from a lot of it. But in hindsight, it ended up being like a really influential, inspiring period. I think so I was doing, um, you know, computational immunology and learning about the immune system and just how absolutely um, incredible it is, like the mechanisms of it. Um, and, you know, we're sequencing it, doing kind of RNA sequencing, analyzing that data, doing some clustering and, and kind of analysis on it. So I got kind of a little bit better at, um, you know, the fact that I, that's where I started picking up some machine learning techniques and also where I just got really inspired by like the mechanisms of biology. Um, and the more, you know, the more I learned about it, just the more kind of all inspiring the processes were. And so it ended up being this kind of like indirect way uh, that really um, ended up inspiring me in a very unexpected way and brought a lot of things together. And I, I think maybe one, um, you know, reflecting on it, like there's a lot of value in, in doing things that are kind of outside what you may have thought you, you wanted to do. Because um, how things inspire you or bring together other things, it's kind of hard to predict. And like, obviously the work is really interesting and, and really like purposeful and, and really cool. Um, and, you know, trying to like understand like cancer in, in the immunology mRNA sequences. Um, and yeah, but during that, I basically wasn't. And then, at least for the first year or two, um, but then I started getting really into kind of biological systems. And that kind of led me to the, you know, ant colony algorithms, genetic algorithms. Um, you know, it's probably how like this, like the, the, um, you know, the, the, the proteins get rearranged in your, um, uh, in your immune system during kind of like hypermutation process that occurs um, in your kind of adaptive immune system. And so, yeah, I started almost thinking like a systems approach. Kind of, I think I kind of clarified the systems approach to things and kind of the beauty of the system. And it was in the lab, or like while I was working at the lab, that I started tinkering on some of the stuff at the side um, and started thinking about, um, you know, growth and generativity together. Um, and during that time in the lab, I, I visited another lab in, in Cambridge where they were trying to like 3D print buildings. Um, and that was a really, that was kind of a turning point for my work because that kind of is when everything kind of crystallized for me. And like, well, how would you design, like you have this ability to 3D print a building, how would you design something for that? And suddenly like optimization, growth, sculpture, new interfaces all kind of came together for me. This one moment just by visiting this lab and I got really into like, uh, like Autodesk, what they were doing with topology optimization, like these chairs where you create this kind of new, uh, it's a chair that no one would have ever created on their own, right? Um, it's kind of new aesthetic kind of optimization. Um, and so what does that look like for something like a building, right? And if it's something kind of like a lot of processes in biology, we're getting these results that no one could have designed. Um, and they come about by a process of growth, maybe some of it's interactive growth. And so 
that's when I got really into generative stuff. That's when I started doing a bunch of generative plants, generative floor plans. What was it? How would you, how would you grow a floor plan? Right. And then it, how would you guide that process, which then led naturally into, into breeding and some of the research in interactive evolutionary algorithms. So I think working in the lab also gave me a lot of time to like read these papers. You know, that's when I got comfortable just like reading papers, right. Having time to read papers. And so like that ended up being really fortuitous where I could just like, you know, I had time to read papers, which I think like early on, um, yeah, if I, if I, I don't know if, like, if I need advice for anyone. It's like the first thing for college, leave yourself time to like do, like be able to read stuff. You know what I mean? And like, cause I, I felt like that was so important for me. I was able to like discover a bunch of things that way that ended up being like, uh, influential for me. Just had the time to do that in the lab. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how things transitioned, uh, for me then getting into like, how do kind of thinking about a biological system as the kind of process that a person can interact with to do this kind of new, new type of, of design work. I see. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I know I, I also had a bit of that where I took a break from grad school from, from research, uh, and just worked in industry for a bit after undergrad. And, and that gave me time to kind of self-educate on deep learning and start writing these little blog posts and yeah, just sort of do some stuff on the side that in hindsight was pretty uh, influential on me. So it's, it's interesting how these things come about. Yeah. I think it's cool how like everything kind of comes together somehow, you know, everything you study or like, kind of like seeds you plant they just like come out and grow together yeah you tend to sort of drift in one direction somehow even if it's like a weird path right somehow yeah it's true absolutely you have like a natural force um and sometimes it's good to like not take the shortest path there yeah sometimes you know i guess you you can't you know you have to go at uh this circuitous way to get there. Yeah, and there's kind of like the meta point. I mean, there's the the book, like Why Great Innovation Cannot Be Planned by Kenneth Stanley and Joel Lehman that I cite. It was like part of the inspiration for Art Breeder where like they make this exact point where it's like you need these unexpected stepping stones to kind of get anywhere, which is like, and, and they mention this a lot. They're kind of like, it's true for in many levels. Uh, like Art Breeder is that, but the way I got to Art Breeder was also... <laughs> that and like it's now intentionally the way i try to like approach my work as well like you know just being being open for the unexpected mm, yeah yeah for sure um yeah so at this time you you were getting to reading papers and uh, i guess thinking more about generative processes with biology and I, it sort of was also you know uh, in hindsight, uh, accidentally a good sort of uh, coincidence that uh, in that time period, uh, AI for creativity started to really come about. So with GANs in 2014, 2015 and star transfer, you know, that was definitely, I guess, since then things started happening. So um, wait, were you seeing any of these developments, seeing any of these new artists at the time and yeah, I guess did that start germing at that point? I was a little out of the loop, to be honest. Um, I took Andrew's class in like 2015 or 2016, I think. So, 
you know, that like I think for a lot of people kind of gave a good kind of foundation or intuition for things. And I was doing some of it for the research in the lab. Um, and I, I was kind of keeping an eye on it. I was not as closely as I am now. Um, and I had a kind of weird introduction to it, I guess, where I was really interested in genetic algorithms and growth. I guess I was kind of like a decade or two behind everyone, or I was really interested in some of these like ideas of like embryogenesis and indirect encodings, right? Um, for genetic algorithms, where it's like, how do you, how would you, you know, grow a floor plan or how, like what's the what's you need a growth process, right? So you can have this like compressed space where you do your search process, which is so optimization and growth and form are all deeply coupled. And that's something that people were, you know, writing papers about in like early 2000s, late 90s. Um, and I was kind of doing that with like these generative plants, generative floor plans, and got to like, well, to optimize the floor plan or a plant, you need to grow it, right? And so I got really big on growth. And then when I started learning about machine learning and the latent space, my first kind of naive thought was like, oh, wow, this is a great like genetic representation because you have this crossover mechanism that you don't have with like a, like a manual um, genetic representation for like a floor plan. Like how do you breed two floor plans together? If you're optimizing them, like that's really tricky. Um, and when the latent vector is like, oh, this is a great like genetic encoding for a genetic algorithm, which is like a bit naive because there are a lot of places where you like, you just want to do like direct gradient, you know, ascent on it. But so that was my first experiments with like a genetic algorithm on latent vectors around that time, like like six months before, which like was a bit naive, of course, but it kind of got me into it. Um, and kind of, and I was like trying to figure out what's the best like genetic operators for you know a latent vector and that kind of stuff. Um, so that was kind of how I first got into it. Got it. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting coming into it like just discovering late uh, vectors vector representations of you know uh, different things and now i guess in our reader you know one of the terminologies you ha actually have genes right and you're reading so <laughs> definitely see the connection yeah <laughs> you kind of set that up yeah uh, yeah, so then let's get into uh, Artbeater. Um, so looking back, I, I checked for fun and it looks like you announced it on November 19th of 2018, like two and a half years ago, roughly. And yeah, I guess we already kind of delved a lot into kind of what inspired it. Uh, so maybe can you describe how it first came about, sort of how long it took to prototype and uh yeah yeah sure. stuff like that yes yeah, so i had been reading um paper, like uh, some you know interactive evolutionary papers um and i read you know the papers out of kind of stanley's lab around pick breeder and, and the follow-up work to pick breeder um and so at the time i was actually trying to make the Generative design floor plan algorithm tool a real thing. Picker Beater yeah. is kind oh, of, of a sure. progenitor where I guess the idea is similar, but they're using really different techniques. And it was like 2000s, I think, or around that time when it was developed. Around that time, yeah, they developed a lot of the ideas, and I try I try to cite them a lot because they deserve a lot of the credit for you know pioneering. They deserve the credit for pioneering those ideas. And Art Beater, you know, I joke was just like. Pick breeder bred with big gan, you know, like <laughs> I really, 
I remember at the time thinking like someone needs to combine big game with pick breeder and like if it, like no one else is doing it, so I guess I have to do it. Like it almost felt like an obligation. It wasn't some like I didn't think it was some like big thing. I remember tweeting like who's going to do this? Like do I have to do it? <laughs> like I remember being like I might just tweet like saying someone needs to do this. Like combine pick breeder with big game because like it seemed just like an obvious pair. Like they just naturally fit well together. I was like. I had a shoot, like, I don't know. So it just seemed like these two things just obviously like go together. Like no one else is doing it. I guess I'll yeah, do it. <laughs> it's one of these things that needs to be brought into a world. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's very combinatorial, which again is like kind of a meta thing of itself. Um, and so pick breeder was an early version using CPPNs and, and neuroevolution, which is a technique also developed by, by Kenneth Stanley, where it's kind of this like feed forward network where you kind of map from, the X and Y to RGB. And you have a lot of kind of cool neurons in there that produce a lot of like interesting patterns. Um, and so without any training data, any training, um, you can get really interesting patterns. And they did a lot of very um, inspiring research in this, you know, with, through a few steps of um, breeding, you might get to something like a really cool discovery. But if you would try to optimize for that discovery, it may take tens of thousands of steps or never. And so they were able to kind of, by having this tool to interact with it, you know, build up these intuitions around like, what does it mean to explore and, and the relationships between exploration and um, optimization and discovery. And obviously, you know, they, they explain their work a lot better than I can. So I, you, should, you should check out their papers and, and talks. Um, and when I, you know, when I launched Artbeater, I, you know, I, I attached all their talks. So I was trying to also trying to like draw attention to their work. Hmm. Yeah, I I found out about it, I think, through our beer. So it was, yeah, very cool. And kind of uh, one of these things of taking an idea that was really pretty amazing, the sort of like collaborative art creation. Yeah, bringing it, continuing it in a sense. Yeah. And so I think I had come to like breeding through like these 3D printed buildings and thinking through like, well, how would you design a 3D printed building? Um, and so I was starting to think about like, the history of like dog breeding um, and using that as kind of like the organizing metaphor. And so like the thesis for my work since then has been this kind of um, what I call like morphogenetic design. That's why the company is named Morphogen, um, where it's about it's kind of like biomimicry of the process. So, like, biomimicry is often taking certain forms from biology. We're here talking about taking the process from biology, right? Where, like, okay, maybe, like, the, the way the veins in a leaf work could be useful for plumbing in a building, right? But I, I'm trying to generalize it a little further. Like, well, a building, if it was evolved, you know, it, it, would, it would look differently, right? It's a different problem. And so, but there's certain processes that you could use to get to a different result, but the processes are interesting. And so, for instance, you know, local adaptation, um, the ability to kind of interact at this higher level. Um, and part of that is, you know, like we bred, we, we design dogs from wolves. Which I find that like a very kind of compelling design process because it has certain really amazing properties, right? It was, it was like, there was no, tutorials there was no like you know compare it to like autodesk software or something where you need like incredible amount of complexity and tutorials and training like it was so easy people didn't even know they were doing it um and it kind of instead of like reducing design 
down to selection and like literally selecting the best pup of each litter. And through that process of that's radically like pick the best one out of four, right? Like you can't really get simpler than that. It's like almost is like the limit of simplicity. Maybe it's like, here's two, pick one, right? And you do that iteratively. Because um, people know what they like when they see it, right? Even though they try to conceptualize it. So you have this kind of like the, like the most simplified method of design that's also the most powerful. And it was decentralized, right? And like, there's no committee like here are what we want in dogs that we don't have in wolves. Like let's meet 10,000 years ago and plan it out. And it was like localized, right? Every region could adapt it to their own needs, which I think is honestly like the greatest design process that's ever happened. Um, and it got us dogs, right? Which are arguably the, the best things we have. I don't know. I think dogs are great, right? They hunt for, with us. They protect us. Their company. They do everything. Um, and, and we design them, even though we don't know how they work. So, like, arguably, is that design? I would argue it is. Like, we don't know everything about physics. We still design with it, right? Um, so that was really inspiring for me. Like, how could you apply that process to to buildings, right? And could you like decouple complexity? from accessibility, right? Could more people get in the process once you make it simpler? And through that decoupling, increase like the diversity of style, right? Um, where if only a few people can design for something, you get more of a homogenous style. So that's a lot of the, that a lot of the thinking behind the tools I was trying to do. Um, and then all got developed like five years ago. Basically everything since then has been trying to follow through on that thesis. And so Things like the generative plants, the generative floor plans are all kind of connected to that thesis in terms of like the complexity of forms that could be optimized and how you might interact with them. Uh, then our breeder was like the breeding side of it, which is, okay, how do you actually guide these things? So like some of the generative plants or floor plans I had done, they weren't directly controllable. And so before I was doing our breeder, I was trying to make a tool where you could you would do like a multi-objective optimization on floor plans and you kind of adjust the sliders, but it became clear to me, you need more direct control than that. And so the our breeder is originally going to be the interface for the floor plans. Um, and then I realized that like uh, GAN would also be like an easier way to test out the interface. So people think like the interface is showing off the GAN, but no, kind of the GAN was for me a way to show off the interface. Um, but then the big GAN, they just kind of stuck because they went so well together. And the hard work of the GAN was already done right by people at Google, um, Andrew Brock and others. And so it started off, I was doing this floor plan thing for a few months and I took just a weekend off actually. I, I sat in a coffee shop literally for three days straight. The owner came out and, and jokingly threatened to charge me rent for sitting there all day <laughs> for three days straight and drinking a ton of coffee. And that was how the first version got made. I was kind of procrastinating from the floor plans. And I just I just took three days and I lived in a coffee shop and drank a lot of coffee and and pack. I mean the first version was was like incredibly simple. Right, right. Yeah. I guess at that point was it uh, mostly this feature which uh, was has been there for a long time of uh, you know, you you have an image, you cook an image and it kind of generates some options, right? Uh, yeah. So you click on one of the options and then you get that option and some other kind of children. So you can basically just, as you said, make this continual selection and do this sort of journey of discovery where eventually you get somewhere pretty far. So was that the result yeah. there? The basic one was to click on one, here are like 12 others, and there's another page where you could like enter two URLs and it would breed them. 
Yeah, that was that was the first version, and it was like it saved everything. It was incredibly like it would just like generate thirty images and save them all. So huge load on the server. But yeah, that was that was the first version. Got it. Yeah. So that that's a pretty fun story. Yeah, and uh, I guess I mean as you said, it, this is like. Um, Pretty, pretty cool idea once you get it, right? So I guess, yeah, I'm curious uh, when you first kind of released it, uh, how quickly did people take notice, uh, start playing with it? What was that sort of process? I think that the kind of machine learning Twitter sphere is a little more tightly connected, which helped a lot. And that was also kind of the reason I called it Gambreeder at first, which is kind of like, Excite with people, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Kind of, um, I mean, because besides the name, nothing in the app, I was very intentional not to use any machine learning terminology. In the app, even though everyone in machine learning knows exactly what's going on, right? And it's not hiding anything, but like the phrase, you know, high dimensional latent space does not, does not appear anywhere. Um, and so we kind of, people in the machine learning and art sphere uh, were using it right away because, you know, you only had one or two people retweeting it in that bubble for kind of everyone to see it. So it started there and then kind of like just kind of gradually grew out from that to people who were, you know, artists doing experimental things with technology. And it just kind of gradually grew outward from there. Got it. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Cause I, one cool thing about it is even if you're someone like me where you know how AI works, it, it really makes it very accessible, right? Where all of that stuff, the GPU, the model is in the background and you, you just click. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very easy. Yeah. You just click. Yeah. I, and yeah, it's someone like yourself, you know exactly kind of what's going on under the hood. I think it's cool. Like when I talk to computer scientists, sometimes they're like, oh, you know, it lets you really understand the latent space. And if I talk to artists who don't know anything about machine learning, they, they can enjoy it for almost like the opposite reason because they don't, you know, know anything about that. And so, you know, both sides can kind of enjoy it for different reasons. Yeah. And it's united by the UI, making it very straightforward and, yeah, very simple, which is a strength. Thank you. Yeah. Um, also curious, did you sort of have a suspicion that it might be a bit of a big deal from the outset or, or how long did it take kind of, well, a big deal in the sense of like a, a longer term project that you'll keep developing uh, and will keep growing? It was hard to say. I don't know. I, don't, I can't say I thought it was as popular as it was or that it stayed popular. I think I was really like, it was definitely, I think also it was really hard to know like how like how much potential there was, and I think a lot of that also goes to the the power of Big Gan. Like I want to give a lot of credit to them, where it just it happened to turn out there was so much of the space that was undiscovered. Right, there was so many like cool pockets and parts of it that like no one would have ever got into. And so, in a way, like the success of Art Breeder is also the success of like what Trick Breeder and Big Gan had kind of set up. Right, where. There was so much stuff that Big Gan could do, but no one had the tool to see it, right? Because the first year, it was just Big Gan. And, you know, obviously, since then, more models have been added on. But it's just the fact that Big Gan kind of kept giving and giving uh, really, really enabled it to have that kind of lasting power, I think, where you could you could keep finding new things, you know? And so I think if Big Gan hadn't, wasn't a, was not as good, 
it, you know, like that, maybe that, you know, maybe it, you got tired of it after a couple hours, then it would have been, that would have been that. Um, so I, you know, I, I really do think a lot of the credit there goes to just like how crazy powerful began is. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a powerful idea. Like, obviously I'm very, I don't know where, I don't know, maybe zealotry is too strong a word, but the idea of like breeding is this like future of design interfaces. I am, I'm a believer in that. Like maybe that's how buildings and cities will be built in the future. Uh, but that's more of like long-term optimism for our creators. Yeah, I, I really didn't know. It's kind of just a, an experiment to see what would happen. Cool, yeah. And it turned out to be a, a pretty successful experiment. Uh, I guess when you started, uh, that's kind of an interesting point of uh, a lot of it is Big Gan and sort of how rich it was. Um, yeah, Big Gan was interesting in that it was this huge Gan, right, that was trained on tons of data and bigger in some sense and all the stuff that came before it. Yeah, a thousand classes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for that, you could generate dogs, faces, buildings, all this crazy stuff. And then in the, in the middle, right, the latent space, you could you could get to undiscovered things. So I'm curious, uh, yeah, were you surprised or, or, you know, didn't expect it necessarily kind of how rich and diverse and and sort of even if you believed in it how powerful this uh breeding process could be just using big n yeah it's definitely something different to see it you know and i think looking at some of these images like you could look at like the genome for them and you could see like you know they're a combination of like a hundred different things right and i think that really made the point very clearly right like how beyond impossible it would have been for anyone to conceive like you know all right two like negative two percent art store 3.5 percent you know mushroom like that's going to be exactly you know and then 50 other things like that's the combination that i need um and you know because that i think it's a 1128 dimensional space including all the classes right and so you know humans can it's hard to get beyond like four right dimensions and so I think that really drove the point home that like, you know, these are images that could not have been made any other way. Like even though like they're there, you know, in a way they're sitting there, you seem to plug in the right numbers, but there was, there was, there was absolutely no chance it could have been made any other way. And so I think, you know, seeing that really kind of drove the point home that for any kind of like really complex high dimensional space, like this really makes it, it really matters. It's really necessary. Right. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned, I guess, this, this um, crossbreeding was there from the outset, maybe in a limited form. And that's another cool thing. In addition to these, like, children, you could take two images and, and breed them and get this sort of intermediate results. And, uh, yeah, that that also is something where unlike these gene things, you could, you could sort of use your intuition and start learning what you get. Yeah. So was that also there from the beginning? And then was that something where you were playing around with these things a lot and kind of discovering it early on? Yeah. I think that it brings up a good point, which is I didn't know, like that only the way of knowing, like how much would it feel like, a tool or a demo? I think it's a really important distinction where like, you know, that's one of the things about tools, like for it to be a tool versus a demo, like you have to feel like 
you know, you have control over it. You can express your own ideas. You, you can feel ownership over the output, right? And whether or not you'd be able to feel ownership over the output, I think is like kind of a make or break distinction for a lot of tools. Something I think about with like some of these newer technologies that are coming out now. And it was really unclear, like, all right, would it be fun? Would everyone make the same looking kind of dog flowers? And that would be that, you know? Um, would artists actually be able to feel like they were expressing themselves, developing their own their own craft? And that was that was probably the 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 best thing that happened was artists, like I talked to artists and they would talk about how they would use genes, right? Or how they would do crossbreeding and their intuition for how how it worked. And that was my favorite part of talking to people like, you know, like, oh yeah, like I, you know, I always bring in a little bit of sliding door if I want this. And even looking at the lineages and seeing how, or looking at images and being able to tell kind of who made them. I think that was the biggest test and that there was no way of knowing with, with Big Gan. I think that's, that's most true with Big Gan is how diverse it is. Um, so yeah, that, that was definitely the most kind of pleasant surprise was seeing that people actually like, you know, felt like they, they, they had ownership over the output, which led to other sometimes issues as well regarding ownership. But I think that was the big um, threshold for having it actually be a successful tool and something that was like the biggest kind of validation of the experiment. Yeah, definitely. I I can think of myself of like when I was starting to play with it, you know, finding certain motifs uh, fascinating i was really into these like creepy doll people <laughs> in black or something like yeah. crazy and then yeah you can sort of get you know just exploring a local space in some sense you could easily do for hours and and sort of no yeah as you said there's some level of control where uh you feel like you are creating something in, in a certain style and not just randomly mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, going from that, I guess uh, one thing is one thing that's interesting is it's, it is a very visual process where you take two images and breed them or you start with one image and generate children or you can even tweak these genes, but then you get a new image right away. And I always found it very interesting because, uh, you know, each image of these needs to be generated by a GPU using this model that's pretty big. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, then being served in, in almost real time. So it's all, you know, pretty computationally intensive, you must imagine, especially when you're providing it for free for as many people as possible. So how did that sort of work out, especially as you were scaling? You know, that seems pretty challenging. Yeah, the GPU stuff is a real um, challenge for a lot of these machine learning apps. It's it's a tricky thing and it's expensive, particularly in the beginning. Um, And the short answer is there were some, I had some GPU credits available in the beginning, which is what, what made it possible, frankly, uh, particularly before, you know, able to optimize the cost and the performance of it. Um, so in the beginning, I had some free cloud credits that basically allowed it to work. And the first demo, I literally just spun up, I think, like a V100 <laughs> and left it running all day. Um, and, and, you know, and that... It, and it, it was like a flash server on a V100 and that was that it was like the simplest thing you could imagine. And, and it worked. 
Um, cause again, I did it in like an hour or two. I didn't really put a lot of time into it. Um, but I think for a lot of these creative machine learning tools, you kind of, in the beginning, it's really difficult cause you need to get to a certain scale to make it feasible or sustainable. And so thankfully now it's at that point and we've tried really hard to keep it accessible. I mean, you can create infinite images and they're stored forever. Right. So, and then, so we've tried to keep it really, really accessible. And then like the next tier up is like $9 a month. And so I think that ended up just making it accessible and benefiting everyone. I think art breeders unique, uniquely unique property to it that I really like that even if you're using the tool for free, you're in a way helping everyone else out by kind of um, unearthing these parts of the latent space and sharing them with everyone else. Just by using the tool, you help everyone else out, which I think is a really great property. And so I want to keep it free just to keep it accessible for artists, but also by keeping it free, you're able to, um, you know, help everyone else out. And so, you know, thankfully now between, you know, when you subscribe, you, you, there's certain things that are more expensive, like, generating long videos, right? With tens of thousands of frames or doing the uh, latent space encoding, which is another really intensive process. And so there's limits on that if you're um, a free user, but yeah, image making is free. And I guess like the, the cloud, you know, made it all possible. The fact that we could just dump a hundred million little JPEGs on Amazon and it surprisingly, you know, doesn't break the bank. Um, so yeah, thankfully now it's gotten to a point, a certain scale where the economics work out. But in the beginning, it's quite difficult, and you, you kind of need at least a few Amazon credits or something to get you over that over that uh, barrier. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess yeah, it's it's lucky how it just came together. But you had these things to just throw something together, and then yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think a long time ago, a while ago, I paid for a tier. So, and then I... Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really pretty useful because you get these high-res downloads. Yeah. Right? Uh, where you, when you really numbered by some <laughs> art, you can get, you know, much more detailed stuff. And I won't advertise for it, but you can if you want. <laughs> sure, yeah. No, I, think, <laughs> I guess now is a good time to mention, uh, which we sort of haven't, is, you know, you can go and, and find it on artbeater.com, very simple. And uh, yeah, you can just start using it for free. And then it, the tiers, are, I think, are, are nice because... If this can definitely be be a hobby in some sense. Like I, I've I've played with it a good deal, and it, I found it doesn't get boring. So, and I, and I guess, uh, do you still play around with it and and generate your own art, or uh, do you just observe what other people I'm, do? Yeah. At this point, I, I'm more observe. Occasionally, I, I get it, I get into a little bit, but at this point, I'm more observe. As you can imagine, I looked at a lot of big end images over the time, so. Um, I, I have less time to just play with it myself now. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Um, and then I guess in that sense of observing, do you have any like highlight memories of coming upon something the community has created and sort of really liking it? And yeah, just sort of being uh, pleasantly surprised. I think hearing from people is one of my favorite things, like how they use the images. I think that you know, in a sense, the images are kind of a means 
rather than, I mean, an end in a lot of cases where it's like, they're it's kind of like inspiration fuel for a project. Some people email me and they're like, look, I did like a whole, I have a gallery of paintings that were like inspired by art Peter images or like all the characters for my book were like based off characters I made in art Peter. So I think for me, that's kind of the favorite thing is how people use it as inspiration fuel for them as part of a, like a larger process that they like a personal process they have um because some of the images are, are quite amazing i think there's definitely like an ownership people can have on them a craft on them but i think a lot of the really inspiring stuff for me is how people will then take those images and you know paint over them or something as the basis for for ideas um and you can kind of see the core of the idea and the art theater thing but how they then interpreted it and, and uh themselves is, is, is really is really um inspiring for me and yeah, it makes a lot of sense, uh, I guess. And also there's a lot of sort of ways that could happen. So now in Artbeater, you have sort of a bunch of categories, right? Of uh, You can generate these like full body character designs, which are often a little bit blurry, a little bit, you know, <laughs> yeah. messy still. But uh, I've heard sort of some people are using that for character development, yeah. And you have portraits, you have landscapes. And yeah, in each case, you know, you do end up with sort of flaws. You can't fully control it. So I can totally see how people use that as a basis and then, you know, fine tune it to their needs. Yeah, like take parts and kind of like paint over them or like, you know, there's an idea in there, almost like cloud gazing kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, it's also been interesting how they're has been a, a pretty natural sort of growth for Artbeater itself, where, as I mentioned, originally there was just one sort of image, this like big GAN image, and then you added portraits and landscapes and recently art. Uh, so as a sort of AI has developed new things, it's been integrated and also works. So um, yeah, I'm curious sort of what is exciting for you in terms of the present state of art reader and maybe the future of art reader, any, any next directions you're taking it. So right now, one of the, we're, we're, we have a few things we're working on right now. Um, and one cool development is I'm not working on it by myself anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, like I, I had friends kind of helping out before, um, but, but you know, it's primarily just me. And so thankfully there was, um, after the New Year's, I was actually able to grow the team, which is really cool. Um, so that is exciting. Um, so for now, so now we're doing a couple things. One is that um, we're doing kind of like a redesign of the site. Um, there are definitely some kind of uh, sore spots or pain points in it. I mean, it was, it was all designed by me and I'm not bad, but it's definitely not my, not my strength. Um, so making the site easier to use, more intuitive. We have some really cool things in the works there for the interface. Uh, I think also we're playing around now a, a lot with like certain techniques and kind of clustering and image analysis. Like how do you, browse a hundred million images that have been made, right? Like, what does that mean to explore that space? So I think there's a lot of cool potential there. Like all the, like there's so many images that have been made that are hard to see after they've been on the trending page. So we're, we're, we're doing some stuff there. We have a new buildings GAN, architecture GAN, 
um, better kind of creation control and browsing, sorry, better um, creation interface and browsing interface. Also really interested to get some artificial life into ArtBreeder, um, you know, moving beyond GANs. I think artificial life is going to be incredibly cool because you have, you know, now potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of people interacting with these systems where maybe there's been some work in kind of automated artificial life discovery methods. But I think one thing that you think with ArtBreeder that no other interactive genetic algorithm research has had is like tens of thousands of people who've developed a skill set in breeding, right? Like that's kind of a unique thing. And they have all of their computers for compute also. Um, so that I think will be cool. And then we're also working on some new app, sibling apps to ArcReader that I, that I can drop as a teaser. <laughs> nice. But, but that's yeah. the plan for ArcReader right now, yeah. Right. Very cool, very cool. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, there's been, you know, various little games over the years where you kind of develop and breed like a walking whatever. And, uh, you know, I think people often find it fun. And the collaborative process would definitely make it all very interesting. Um, yeah, so uh, that's very cool. And then, uh, I guess I'm also curious, uh, in, in recent times I found that people are finding sort of new ways to, uh, play around with generating art or at least, I don't know, playing around with AI. So a lot of people with GPT-3 kind of create poems and, uh, I don't know, songs and whatever. And, and now VQGAN with Clip has yeah. been kind of very popular because you can just enter a prompt and then you can sort of explore the prompt space. Do you think the sort of uh, kind of process of using AI in this way of sort of very high-level UIs to these fancy models of just text and sort of exploring and building intuition as to how to prompt it or how to guide it. Uh, is that something that you're kind of seeing more and, and are excited for in general uh, as something that emerges? Definitely. The work being done now um, yeah, with, with Clip, um, kind of image generation is incredibly cool. Um, I've seen a bunch of stuff with GPT-3, with like interesting, uh, kind of in an interpreting the output from that. I think for me, one of the questions comes down to like control. How much can it feel like you own the output for it? And I think actually one of the projects I'm working on now is trying to figure out how do you like combine some of these like prompt and more interactive interfaces together. I think like what the right interface for that is. I think because right now it's like, it's incredibly cool and inspiring, but getting it to the next point where it feels like a tool you've ownership on, I think it's the next step. And it's going to get there. Um, and right now I'm kind of doing an experiment with like, what would like interactive branching plus text guiding look like together? Um, which I think it will be incredibly powerful. And also I think connects to this kind of like core metaphor I've been using of, as a, as a, um, a design director, like in a, in a studio, for instance, or like let's say you're in a design process and you're a director, you're kind of like, you're saying like, here's what I want, like give me 10 options like this. And then, okay, here's what I like about this, what I don't like about that. Show me more like this and less like that. 
Um, it's what I kind of refer to as like the different layer of abstraction. The creative. You're not more or less creative. It's just kind of a more abstract kind of creativity, right? And so kind of my art reader, right? You're not drawing it yourself, um, but it doesn't mean it's not a creative process. You're just interacting with it through at a different level of abstraction, the same way like a studio director does, where they like go to their like, you know, people working for them and they're like, you know, I like this, I don't like this, so we more like this, so we less like this. And you do that iteratively, right? And so they're still guiding the process. And so, and they're doing it in many ways through like the, the interface of language and then also through kind of branching together, right? And so I am using that as a reference for this kind of like abstracted design process. And so I think combining text and the kind of iterative, you know, breeding mechanisms together is a really, really powerful combination that I'm trying to do something and we'll see if it works out. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, I've I've been playing around with GPT three a bit recently, and uh, its nice. prompting style is also yeah very fun. There's an art to that too. Like, there's a craft to yeah, getting the prompts right. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, I think um, it's kind of it for me for questions. I think we covered a lot of interesting details, especially about our beater. But is there anything else that maybe came to mind uh, that you might want to share with our audience? Or feel free to just remind them, you know, how to find our beater. Artbeater.com. You sign up today. <laughs> no. Um, anything? Yeah, I think that was it. That was a lot of stuff. I think uh, I can't think of anything else right now. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. So as as we said, check out our beater. Um, at least you can just browse it and, and look at all the interesting art that's trending, right? So you don't even need to use it. You can purely just use it to discover cool stuff. Great. So yeah, uh, that was a great interview. I enjoyed it a lot. And thank you so much, Joel, for taking the time for it. Oh, thank you. I, I deeply appreciate you having me on. It was fun to talk about. Great. So yeah, uh, once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our digital magazine at thegradient.pub and our newsletter at gradientpub.substack. If you are a fan of our work, please support us by sharing your gradient with your friends, subscribing to our newsletter and podcast, and doing the usual rating reviewing the podcast on Apple and elsewhere. And uh, yeah, with that, we're finished. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.